I'm going to be reading our passage for today. We will be reading out of Luke 14, 25 through 35. And would you remain standing? I'll read the passage, and at the end I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and we will all say together, thanks be to God. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. This is the word of the Lord. Have a seat. Good morning. It's really good to be with you this morning. My name is Tim. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, man, it's been fun exchanging stories uh, this morning. Uh, who had the worst uh, experience Wednesday trying to get home? I've got a, uh, I've got a five-hour story. Not me personally. I heard a five-hour story. So if you uh, were longer than that, getting from wherever you were to wherever you're supposed to be, um, you've moved into first place. So as, as most miserable experience Wednesday. So hopefully you've had some fun and survived. Um, and uh, yeah, here we go again. So um, hey, I want to do something. One, one of the ways that we, uh, as followers of Jesus, as a church, uh, is, is when we gather like this and, and we experience uh, God together, um, that forms us. It's a meaningful experience. It's one of the most significant things that we do together. And one of the other most significant ways that we are Christ's body in the world, that we're a church, that we are light to our dark world, is that God, throughout the week, moves us into all different kinds of places and roles and things that we are called to do and allowed to do, or maybe have to do. God moves us out into all these different places, not just our homes, our neighborhoods, but places of work and of school and just of being. And God wants us there and we take him there. We join with him where we are. We're, we're light in the world in that way. The New Testament, the Bible calls us to be that as followers of Jesus. And the most, one of the most significant ways that we are the presence of God in this world, the presence of Jesus in this world is in our places of work. And so uh, during Lent, we just started Lent on Wednesday. It wasn't how we planned on starting it. We planned on being here for Ash Wednesday. That unfortunately was canceled. Um, but we have now moved into this season of Lent. And it's these 40 days plus Sundays that count down from Ash Wednesday to Holy Week, Triumphal Entry and Palm Sunday, and then Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. The, the 40 days model Jesus' time in the desert and the temptation. 
And it's a season for us as the church to say, God, what is it that you want to do in our life in this season as we prepare to celebrate the most significant event in all of history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And so we're anticipating that God's going to do a new work in us as a church and us as individuals. And one of the ways that we want to kind of mark this season is on Sundays through Lent is we want to take time to pray for where God has sent us into our own city and world and thinking through the ways that that we work, the vocations that God has called us to. And so we've done this in the past a little bit. I think we've prayed for uh, those that are in uh, education, teachers, administrators, staff of schools, professors. We've done it for medical professionals before. And right now what what we wanna do is is pray for those of you that are in a couple different areas of work. And I'm gonna let you kind of self-define, but if I can just kind of name a few of them. And if you, if you fit in one of those categories or you think that you do, I'm going to invite you to stand and, and we want to pray for you. And so if you're in the business world in, in any way, if you're in the business world, maybe if you're a, a manager or an executive or that you have oversight of other people in some way, if you're in the business world in, in, in any way, that, that's, that's part of what, who we want to pray for this morning. And then another one is uh, if you're in the kind of financial uh, world at all. Um, if you... Uh, manage finances, if you manage investments, if you're in kind of the financial world in, in any way, accountant, um, any, any kind of that. Those are kind of just two big areas. And if you fit in one of those in some way, here's what we want to do as well. If, if you're online, um, you can stand or not stand. Uh, but we're going to stand in this room if you're, if you're in one of those. And then I'm going to I'm just pray for you. And we're going to pray for you. And the way that we do this, if you're not in one of those, but would like to join in this prayer, if you just find somebody in the room and kind of extend a hand towards them. And what we're going to do is we're going to pray for just confirmation and courage and strength and integrity and a vision for, for your work, that it's, that it's important, that you actually make decisions that affect people's lives, that you make decisions that affect money, which affects people's lives, that, that God has given you a role. Maybe it's one that you've dreamed of and that you've ascended to and you've worked hard for. Maybe it's one that you really, really dread and you wish you had a different one. But right now, it's where God has you. And so we want to we wanna pray for you that that actually becomes a mode and an experience and an opportunity for you to live on mission with Jesus. So if you fit in one of those categories, would you, would you stand up and let us, let us kind of see you? And then uh, and we're going to extend a hand to you. Awesome. Fantastic. So here's what we're going to do. Extend a hand. Uh, uh, we're praying for you as well if you're, if you're at home or listening another time. Um, and I'm going to pray. And... Uh, And let's do this. God, you are the God who provides. You provide uh, for each and every one of us what we need and for many of us far more than we need. And you've provided work for so many of us. And for these that are standing in the room right now, who are standing at home, God, we, we ask that you, you would give a renewed sense of confidence, of courage, of hope, and of integrity in their places of work. God, for those that have a, already have a vision from you for how they can influence other people's lives, not just in work responsibilities or a job description, but a sense that they take you with them into their workplaces, that where they are, you are as well. God, we thank you for that. Would you grow that vision and deepen it and strengthen it? For those that are working in one of these areas of vocation, and it's, it's beyond difficult right now, it's drudgery, it's hard, and they, they daily think about doing something else. God, would you give them a vision for where you have them right now and hope for a future for what might be? Will you give them a sense of 
of influence with the faces and names and people and teams that they lead and, and influence, that they get to be your presence with them. God, not only that, would you, would you enact change and hope where they are? Would their relationships that extend beyond work at times, would their opportunities to speak in kindness and truth and grace expand? God, would you, would you begin to do unexpectedly good things through them in their places of work? And God, thank you for, for jobs. Thank you for an opportunity to work hard and to earn a living and to provide for self and family. We know that is from you and we're grateful for it. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for, for those of you that are, are serving our city in that way, that you're serving your families in that way. And uh, afterwards, if you wanna take just a quick minute, um, two, two folks, Pat and, and Nick, who work in those areas, are gonna be at a table here afterwards. If you wanna just come and say hi and meet others that you saw standing around the room, and there's a chance just to throw your name and contact info down there if you wanna be on list on others that are in similar kind of field of work. Um, so that's one way that we're praying together. Phil mentioned another at 9, uh, from about uh, 9.30 to 9.50 on Sunday mornings. We're starting just to pray together in this room. So a number of us gathered here and we, we prayed together. We walked and prayed around the room, prayed for the online experience as well. Um, but that's starting. And so Sunday's 9.30 in this room. You're welcome to come and pray. And then uh, the week of Holy Week, I shared last week that we're going to be praying in a, in a room, in this room right over here, uh, 24 hours a day for the whole week of Holy Week. And so uh, we're working on that. If you're interested, um, Connor is going to be at this table afterwards. If you just stop by and let, let him know. Um, we've got a few people already that have said they want to be a part of helping to build that and be a part of that. Um, and so more information is coming on that as well. Uh, one last thing, uh, next Sunday uh, evening, uh, we're doing another workshop. We've been doing these about once a month. Um, this one coming next week, March 5th, uh, from 5 to 7 p.m. is on forgiveness. <clears throat> and uh, that's, that's uh, a lost art in our, our world. I, uh, I've been, been noting this for a number of uh, months of just paying attention to what I'm watching uh, online on TV. Uh, and the number of times that when there's a need for forgiveness and they literally can't say the words, will you forgive me and I forgive you. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe that's hard for you as well. Forgiveness is, is a starting point of our identity as followers of Jesus. And it's a necessary thing that we give and receive from one another in relationships. And so it's gonna be a workshop on just what forgiveness is and then how to actually experience that and offer that to one another. So uh, dinner's included, you can sign up in RSVP, but that's next Sunday at 5, 5 p.m. right here. Hey, would you pray with me again? And then we're gonna open up scripture with what Anna just read to us uh, uh, in Luke chapter 14. God, again, we, we come to you, and as we've declared that you are here today, and as we've sung to you and celebrated your goodness in our world and in our lives, we, we ask for you to, to work and move in this time. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to continue to move in our time together, to continue to move as we read your word, as we seek to understand it and to let it not just enter into our minds, but sink into our souls, our very hearts, and form who we are. We need that. And we ask for you to do that work here and now. And Jesus, we declare you again as king and as savior, as the good shepherd, as the bread of life, of the one that we need that gives us life. Would we seek you? Would we hear from you? You promised to be found and to be with us. So would we experience that right now? 
Would you teach us, guide us, and lead us when we hear your voice as we look to your word? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So uh, we read, uh, you, we listened to Anna read these per- verses from Luke chapter 14. And I, um, I don't know if you've, if, I, I kind of been thinking about um, how, where this has shown up in, uh, in my life. And uh, we've all had this experience where we've, uh, we've made a decision and we, we kind of can't believe we've made it once we're into it. Um, I, I tried to just think of the first ones that come to my mind uh, over the course of my life. And the first one that, that popped in my mind, I don't quite know why this popped into my mind, but it was uh, shaving my head for the first time. I, I did it when I was, I, I think it was early in, in college. Um, I got really excited on a, on a mission trip. I was in a foreign country uh, doing some work projects as like a, a 19, 20 year old and had never shaved my head before. And uh, it, it just freaked me out. I didn't, I didn't know what my head would look like. And I was scared, and so I had never done it before. And I was with a bunch of other friends, and a bunch of us were doing it. They were doing it. And I decided I was, I was going to, to shave my head, to buzz it. And I, um, I didn't do it in front of anyone. After everybody else went to bed, I went into the, in the, uh, into the bathroom and took out the clippers and, and started. And I just kind of very, like, like quarter inch by quarter inch started, started going. And I needed to get to that point where I couldn't turn back because it was going to look too bad. And then I, I finally, I, I, I shaved it all. And, and I need to tell you, none of you have ever seen my head shaved before. My head, when it's shaved, is entirely average. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look bad. Um, actually, it might look bad now. I've been told I'm not allowed to do this anymore. So, But I shaved it, and it and it looked average, which was this massive relief to me. I was like, oh, good. I don't have to like wear a hat for the rest of the week. I don't have to hide. Um, it, I can just have my head shaved and, and that's, that's entirely fine. And, I, and I, I got into it because it was this moment where there was this, uh, this high challenge of, hey, let's all do this. We're all going to do it. It's all going to look good. And, and even if it doesn't look good, we're all going to have our head shaved. And so it's fine anyways. And just go, go, go do it and do it. Do it. And I decided to do it then, but I didn't do it until later by myself. And then I kind of gradually got into it. And then I, I did it and it was like, okay. And then I, I probably saved nearly a down payment on a house over the next 10 years by not having to pay anyone to cut my hair. And I just buzzed my head over and over and over again. It was a great decision. It worked out really well. And then was told, by someone I'm married to that that, that was going to be, be part of our past and not our future. And, and then we moved into that, that period. I also thought about a, a tree that I jumped out of that I can't believe I jumped out of. It was way too high and I fortunately didn't break any legs and it was really fun. So I just did it again like a dozen times. It was a big decision that I got kind of caught up in the moment with. And I was like, okay, let's do this. Another one far more significant and important was was when I decided to propose to Abby and, and we got married and I was nervous. It took me, it just, it just only took me seven years from first date to, to getting married and, and finally had to make that call and go, okay, I'm, I'm in. And um, I really hope you are because I spent way too much money on this ring and we've got to go through and get married. And obviously we did and that was 25 years ago. And We've made decisions in our lives that once we step into it, we look back and we go, I can't believe I I did that, but I'm so glad that I did. We read these dramatic words of Jesus, and Jesus has turned to crowds and says, 
it is really, really costly to follow me. And once you choose to follow me, you leave a bunch of other stuff behind that you can't go back to, that you cross over and now you're with me. And so know the costs that it means. And he does it in this social setting where is this sense of like, oh, we're with you, we're going, and hey, others come. And Jesus is almost trying to say, hey, 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 put the brakes on. Do you really know what you're doing? Do you really know that? Have you really taken time to, to stop and reflect and go, is this really what I want to do? And he uses some very strong language. He doesn't want them to be caught up in just the emotion or the crowd or the momentum or the movement, but he actually wants them with both heart and mind to consider what it means following Jesus. And he starts with these words, and you heard them earlier, but let's look at them again. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Hate is a, uh, is a very strong word. It catches our attention. It flags for us. If you can picture Jesus walking along a road and his disciples are right closest with him, they're, they're, they're the closest ones with him. But then there's this massive crowd, this multitudes in a number of places throughout scripture. And they're all following Jesus. And they're into his miracles and they're into his, his teaching and his stories and his parables. And, and they, they know that there's something unique about him and special about him and they want to follow him. And Jesus turns to them and says, you've got to hate everyone in your life that's closest to you. And it only lists family members. But then he gets down to your own self, which is just bizarre language, isn't it? You have to hate your, even your own life to come and be my disciple. And he's using hate figuratively. He's not saying you need to go to your dad and your mom and your sister and the mirror and talk to yourself and say, I hate you. What he's saying is it carries this, this idea of without reservation, you choose a priority relationship in your life. When he says hating all these other people in yourself, he's comparing him, that to himself. And Jesus is turning to people who, who like him and like everything he says, and he says something very strong to them. But it's in this moment, and it's in the momentum where it's like, no, we, we still want to be with you, even though you're calling us to this really extreme high thing of in comparison to everyone else in your life, you are to make me the priority without reservation. Second place doesn't even matter. There's this... Uh, um, I, one, of the, one of the things that I, I really enjoy uh, uh, being, about being a pastor is that I, I get to, to be a part of weddings. I have a really good seat for a lot of weddings. Um, I get to stand right with the couple and, and be a part of, of, of their moment in a very significant way. Um, and I, it's, a, it's a deep privilege and an honor. Part of this is, is helping them pick vows. Um, and if you're engaged and, or thinking about getting married, um, just I'll give you my vow speech. When you're ready to stand in front of others and, and declare your commitment for life to one another, um, there's, there's vows that are exchanged. And what vows are, they're promises to one another. And I just, I tell couples, vows are the things that you're committing to one another. They're not an articulation of how hot you think each other is. That's important. I learned that the hard way years ago in the midst of a wedding ceremony. But 
it, it's promises that you make to one another. And one of the recommendations that I have, because you know, very few couples are actually like, yeah, we've got them, our vows all picked out. And we've been practicing them and all that kind of thing. And so I just go, here's some examples. And one of the examples I say, hey, here's some things to choose from. One of the phrases that's included in that is, I commit to you my love without reservation. Meaning, of all the humans in my life, you are now the highest priority. You are now number one. There's nobody else in my life. My friends, my family, my parents, my sisters, no one else. You are now the priority. There's, without reservation, I've made you the priority. And what happens when we do that in a, in a marriage ceremony, when it, we're talking about biblical marriage, of a man and a wife getting married and making that covenant between one another, what happens in that moment is a new identity. Because there is no reservation, there's no second place, everyone else is a distant, distant priority in terms of a spouse. There's a new identity. And it's no longer my life and your life, it's our life together. I have become a new person. I have become, I became a husband. I was never a husband before. I became a husband in that moment. And what Jesus is saying is, he's turning to the crowds and he's saying, if you're gonna follow me, it takes such a level of investment and commitment and a giving of your whole self that you become another person. You are no longer who you were. You become a new person. Later on in the New Testament, we find that's a new creation, that you've been made new. Jesus is saying, by turning and making everyone else in your life and even taking your own self and putting it a distant second place and making Jesus the priority, you have become a new person. If we were to list out all the characters that Jesus lists out, parents, sister, uh, brother, fam family members, all of that, and, and then self, and we were to think of our own lives today, and, and, and maybe, you know, plenty of us, you know, if we're say, like, move mom and dad distant second, like, I mean, how, many of us would be like, oh, they're already there. They're like third, fourth, fifth, 20th, they're like, I don't know the last time I talked to him. I don't have, a, I have a very broken relationship. I never knew my dad. I mean, we have those stories, right? We have good friends. When we were really close with siblings and thinking about moving them down in terms of priority with Jesus is maybe a little more difficult. But by and large, I think our greatest challenge, our greatest challenge is, is not others, it's ourself in this verse of how do we, without reservation, place Jesus above myself. We live in a, in a time and an age, we live in a, in a culture where me has become not just a priority, it's, it's become, with a lowercase g, a, a God, that, that me has become divine. It's, it's an idol, it's... It's a God, what, what I want and who I am and what I feel has become elevated to the place that nobody else can threaten that or critique that or move that down the priority list. That, that that's, that's the world that we now swim in in our city and our time. We've talked about this here and there over the last couple years because it's such a significant challenge for us and because scripture, that Jesus through this book confronts that reality and it, it, it's, it's face to face in a new level of competition between myself and Jesus who declares himself as king. There's, a, there's a, an author, I've mentioned him before, um, his name's Carl Truman, he's a British 
like philosopher, theologian, smart guy. And he's written a book called Strange New World. And he talks about this reality. So I want to read you this in his words and, and take a look at it. It's up on the screen. The modern self assumes the authority of inner feelings and sees authenticity as defined by the ability to give social expression to the same. I realize it's Sunday morning, but, but just think about this for a moment. Our world says the self has to have the ability to be authentic. Don't, don't squish it at all. Let it breathe and live and grow and be authentic. And in order to do that, it has to express that authenticity publicly, socially. The modern self also assumes that society at large will recognize and affirm this behavior. Man, we're good at that. We've gotten really good at that as a culture. Who, who, who are you? Who do you say you are? What do you feel? Let's, let's guard that and protect that. Such a self is defined as what is called expressive individualism. I've mentioned this before. It's the, it's the time, it's the era, it's the water that we swim in now, it's our culture. Expressive individualism. And then we come to a verse like this, where Jesus confronts and competes with and goes to battle against that very idea and says, actually, you have to take you, and he uses the word hate, but let's say move it down the priority list and make me the priority which then moves to what Charles Taylor, and I might have even read this quote before, but he's a Canadian philosopher, written a book called Secular Age. Listen to these words. The culture of authenticity is one where each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. So we each get to define our own humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. This is, this is where we're at. We don't, we don't want any outside influence defining who we are. And so when Jesus turns to the crowds when Jesus speaks his words to us today, when we read it on the pages of scripture, and he says the exact opposite of this, is he says, I'm an outside entity. I am an outside person. I am a being. I am God in the flesh. And I am telling you who to be. So if you're going to come and follow me, just know that up front. This is what it's going to cost. You no longer get to define yourself. He defines who we are and who we're to be. And that's where we come to this decision of saying, what am I gonna do? We come to this decision of what is the cost that I'm willing to pay, that I'm willing to lay down? And Jesus is saying, I need you to lay down your own identity to come and to follow me. The very next thing Jesus says is him actually doubling down on this. Because he says, and then you've got to carry your cross. You have to carry your cross. When we hear that phrase, it, it, what we might actually hear is, uh, hey, you have, to, you have to take on a burden or you have to suffer. And, and it does include that. But what Jesus is saying is an announcement of, of death. 
When Jesus would have said it in the first century, and this is before he was crucified, right? He's still walking around. He's, he's trying to tell people that he's going to the cross and he's going to die three days later, rise, but they don't quite get it. And Jesus is saying to them, no, you, you carry your cross. And if you're carrying a cross, you're, you're dead. Like not, not literally dead yet, but, but it, it, it's been done. It's been decided. Anyone who is carrying a cross has already been condemned to death. People didn't like carry a cross, like there's just a cross beam around and be like, no, I just wanted to try this out and I'm going to set it down. I don't like it. Like if anybody ever had a cross on their shoulders, like Jesus did when he walked through, the, the, uh, through Jerusalem to Golgotha, everybody knew he was already condemned to death. And so when Jesus says you got to carry your cross, he's saying you have to die to yourself. That's what Jesus is saying. He's actually talking about life and death in these verses. He's talking about what is your life and are you willing to lay it down and are you willing to die for me? He uses these strong languages of life and death. And the reason is, is because he's inviting us to move our own self to second, distant second priority for him in our life. And here's the beauty of it. He says earlier in, in uh, chapter 9 of Luke, Luke, it's up on the screen, Luke chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. These will be familiar to some of us. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet use, lose or forfeit their very self? Jesus is echoing the same idea in the same way, like to lay down your life. Now here's the reality of what Jesus is saying. With this high call to hate our closest relationships and even ourselves, with this high call to carry a cross, to be willing to say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna treat myself as if I'm dead in order to follow you. Jesus is using this and at the very same time saying, it is the best exchange that you can make in your entire life. You don't just lose. You don't just lose family relationships. You don't just lose yourself. In fact, you actually find it. If you're trying to save it, you'll lose it. But if you give it to me, you find it. Jesus is saying, exchange what you have now for me and it will be so much better. That's the reason that we come into this place and, and we sing. That's the reason we share our stories and our lives with one another. Because we know and we've experienced, and many of us have and some of us have not yet, but we've experienced of laying down our own life and finding Jesus and going, somehow, in a way that I couldn't quite see before I stepped across the line and made the decision, that he is better than anything else I had or hung on to. And by letting go of my previous ideas and letting go of my own self and letting go of the things that I'm holding to, of hoping that will save me and be my savior in competition with Jesus are not nearly as good as he is. And so I'm going to let go and find my identity in him. Jesus doesn't want someone to make that decision just in a moment of emotion or momentum or movement where everyone else is doing it. And so he gears down and he says, hey, slow down for a minute and listen to what he says. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. You see what Jesus does here? He turns to the crowds and he says, hey, you got to lay everything down. It's like you have to die to yourself. And they're like, ah, oh, what do I do? And he just gears down and says, hey, let's think about this for a minute. Let's think about your life as like building a tower. And he's talking about a specific kind of tower over a vineyard that you keep watch over it. If you start to build it and you'd run out of stuff, like 
you're not gonna have enough and everybody will look at your vineyard and go, ha ha, yours doesn't work well because you, you didn't plan well. That's, that's what Jesus is saying, like count the cost, plan ahead, think through your decision. And then he goes on and he says, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able to, with 10,000 men, to oppose the one that is coming against him with 20,000. So a king is coming with 20 and you've got 10. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. In the tower, Jesus is saying, can you afford, can you count the cost? Can you afford to follow me, Jesus? In the second one where he's talking about a king coming with 10,000 or 20,000 against yours with 10, he's saying, can you afford not to follow Jesus? Jesus is actually putting himself in the place of the king coming with twice as many as you have. Jesus is saying, I'm more powerful than you. Jesus is just saying, so just ask both sides of the question. Can you afford to follow Jesus? Can you afford to lay down everything that you're holding on to and say, Jesus, you're gonna be my priority. You're gonna be the one that I find life in first and foremost. And then the other side of that question, can you afford to stay where you are and not to follow him? Are the things that you're holding on to enough? Can you afford to not experience an identity that can hold and withstand everything this world throws at it? That is not based on who you are or what you look like or what you're shaped like or what you can accomplish in your own power, but is deeper than that that is offered by the one who created you and designed you and knows what you're intended for and gave his very life for you. Can you afford not to follow that one? Can you afford on your own to figure out what is meaningful and fulfilling? Can you afford not to go with the one that says, I will give you life and life to the full? Can you afford to follow Jesus? Can you afford not to follow Jesus? That's what he's saying. But he actually wants us to consider that, to calculate that, to sit down and go, God, this is what you're inviting me into. This is what you're challenging me to. But you want me to count the cost. I'm willing to give up these things, not these things. It's, in many of our Bibles, this section of scripture is called The Cost of Being a Disciple. There's a book titled The Cost of Discipleship by a German man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you may have known his, may recognize that name, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, an accomplished young man, got a doctorate early on, wrote books, came over from Germany during the beginning of the rise of the Nazi party, was a, was a professor, visiting professor in New York City, and just had accomplished so much as a young man. But he decides, I can't leave followers of Jesus to the Nazi influence. I am going to go back into Germany, knowing that I might not get out, but I'm going to go back into Germany and train and disciple young people and resist this influence in our culture of Nazism. And he was a part of starting something called the Confessing Church. And what the Confessing Church was doing was standing apart from the cultural wave that was going on that captured so many Christian churches that went along with the government, went along with culture, went along with the message that there's a certain type of people that should be destroyed. And they changed their doctrine of their churches to go along with that power. And the confessing church remains separate from that and says, we're not gonna compromise what we believe Jesus is teaching us. One of the great things that 
that that models for us today is that we have to confess what is both true and what is both untrue. What do we have to repent from and what do we have to agree with? And Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived that, embodied that, and eventually counted his own life as lost as he was killed right at the end of the World War II, that he was hung and died for his faith and for what he believed. He wrote Cost of Discipleship earlier on. It's maintained its relevance and its significance because it calls us to this laying down of our own life by the very author's model of his life. But I wonder what it is for us to be a confessing church today. And we can talk about the culture and the influence and all of those things and our doctrine in there. But if we're to drop it down on a, on a personal level and to say, what is it that we need to confess? See, for many of us, when we hear the call of Jesus, we immediately assess where we're at in our faith. And so I wonder for those of you that are say, my, my faith feels thin. My faith feels dry. My faith feels fragile, debilitated, not very important, not a priority. What it looks like to confess if that's where you're at. Because what Jesus is asking us to exchange is wherever we are to come to where he is, to lay down our life and to trust him. And when we've done that and it feels like we have a flimsy, thin, debilitated, weak, faith, where we're asking questions, am I in this? Am I really, why isn't Jesus showing up more significantly? One of the things that we can do is exactly what Jesus is inviting us to here, is to stop and to say, I just want to reflect on where I am right now and what you have for me, Jesus. And as we enter in this season of Lent, we have ample opportunity to do that. We have ample opportunity to say, Jesus, where are you at? Jesus wants us to have the real thing. Jesus wants us to have a vibrant, powerful, forming relationship with him where we actually see in life the potential that he has for us, where we can see out there the hope that so many people don't have, that he's inviting us to that. And this season of Lent is to step into, like Jesus did, to step into the temptation for us to step into a time where we go without something or add something new into our life. One of the things that we want to add new is to practice a, a moment of confession at this point in our gatherings. And so we're going to go on and we're going to continue to sing. But I want to invite you to, to confess. And I want to give you kind of two things to think through. One of the things that confession is, is agreeing with God. That's part of what confession means, is I'm going to agree with God. And so one of the things that Jesus says is that he is the way, the truth, and the life. If that's part of your, your faith and your life and your conviction right now, that's what you can do when you come to this table. Confess, Jesus, you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life. The, another part of confession is repentance. Is to say, Jesus, this is where I am way out of line with you. This is where I'm giving myself to things in this world that are not of you. This is the ways that I have things that are competing with you for priority in my life. Whether that be my time, my attention, my energy, how I define myself. And we lay that down and say, I want to turn from this. This is not of you. And so as we go in to this first Sunday of Lent and coming to the table for the first of these Sundays, would you confess something? 
Would it be something that you agree with Jesus about? That he's doing in your life and you can identify, this is where you're at work in my life. Or will you share something with him that is taking you away from him? If it is your experience that you feel far from God, that you find yourself questioning, questions are not a sign of weak faith. Questions actually are a sign of leaning in and growing and strengthening our faith. Like pushing up weight and running an extra mile. It's, it's working out our faith and stretching it. But if you feel like it's faint and thin and fragile, one of the things you can come and confess is, Jesus, I want it to be vibrant and strong and formative in my heart and mind. Would you shape me during this season? Jesus, as we come to your table, would you, would you meet us here? Would we experience the beauty of your grace and your forgiveness and of your healing, even in this moment as we walk to this table? As we take this juice that represents your blood shed for us on the cross that you carried and that you were nailed to, that you bled for us, would we take this cracker as your body that was broken for us, that you, as God incarnate, as God in the flesh, that you came down and lived among us to give your very life. There is no other one who has ever done that. We come to you as our savior, as our king, knowing that you are the one that invite us to count the cost, to calculate the cost, and to come and receive your invitation that we cannot afford to say no to you, that you invite us to come and to join with you and to be yours.